Today's reading is from uh, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 13, verses 1 to 17. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel round his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped round him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not every one was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for the reading. It was terrific. Um, hi, I'm Mark. I'm part of the uh, ministry team here. And uh, I just want you to uh, consider um, a situation not unlike this, a situation that Shakespeare imagines. Um, you're about to die. Yeah, the enemy's forces outnumber you. You've got weapons, but not enough to do anything meaningful. You love your men deeply, but there's all sorts of squabbles going on. They're jockeying for position. One of your closest allies has decided to betray you. Uh, despite this, you love them, and even though death awaits you, you know that they, your men, can yet pull off a great victory. You've got one last meal together. What do you do, and what do you say? Well, this is how Shakespeare imagined it. He said, uh, on the eve of the Battle of Agincourt, which fell on St. Crispin's Day, with his men vastly outnumbered by the French, Shakespeare depicts Henry V addressing his troops, asking them to imagine the glory and the immortality 
that will be theirs if they are victorious. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispin. Then our names familiar in his mouth as household words shall be remembered, we few. We happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed. They were not here and hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. Wow! You just want to go get them, don't you? <laughs> now that's how you address your men on the eve of a great and uncertain day. And when your back's against the wall, and yet victory can still be rescued from the jaws of defeat. When the battle's to be won, the war is to be saved, and you're going to save your country. You appeal to a man's honor, to his pride, to his valor, and you remind him that his name will go down in history. And here in our story, Jesus is on the precipice of the greatest day in history. What does he do? And what does he say? Well, John, at the beginning of this passage, lays out for us the sort of background that um, the, the Jesus uh, is contemplating, that he is God's son, that there is a winning victory to be won, that he is about to suffer a betrayal and to die a most cruel death, but then to return the, to the Father, leaving the disciples behind. So what message should he leave behind? Not only that, but this passage begins uh, the foundational teaching of Jesus. And John is showing us that this will stretch for the next few chapters. That teaching will be foundational in, in a radical reshaping of the whole world. And so... So Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. That couldn't be more prosaic. That couldn't be further from what Shakespeare imagines in Henry V. And if it seems to us an unusual way to pass on world-changing teaching, it was downright shocking, shocking to the disciples. You know, my wife and I went out to um, dinner last night, and as we were going out the door, we could hear this rumbling outside. We didn't know what it was. But it turned out it was a, um, a, a neighbor, two doors down, was having their drains cleaned. And there was the van turned up, you know, the grubby van with the, all the pumps and the things. And you know what? Jesus may as well have turned up as a drain cleaner as to be someone who sat down and kneeled 
and washed his disciples' feet. This was the most humiliating of jobs. And that's no disrespect to drain cleaners here, by the way. But this was a disrespectful job. And the thing is, we've got so used to this story, so used to this idea of foot washing, the children are actually out making big cardboard feet to depict this story. And we, you know, we love this story. But it is shocking. And we must not lose sight of how shocking it was and it's meant to be. Because in that shocking, in that shock that we receive, it teaches us something. And so a Bible commentator, Bruce Mill, says this. Jesus' action was unprecedented. A wife might wash her husband's feet, children might wash their father's feet, and disciples might wash their master's feet. But in every case, it would be an act of extreme devotion. Foot washing was normally carried out by a slave and the lowest of slaves, not by those participating in the meal and certainly not by the one presiding at the meal. So this was an outrageous act. And Jesus says later on in the passage that he expects us to be just as outrageous, just as shocking in our own behavior. Okay, so let's look at what Jesus is encouraging us to do when we view this passage. He's encouraging us uh, to commit outrageous acts of love, outrageous acts of forgiveness, and outrageous acts of submission. Let's turn first to outrageous acts of love. Verse 1. Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, let's look back at what we know and what Jesus knows. He's about to undergo the most excruciating and humiliating death. We know that from what Luke, Luke's account of this story, that his disciples have been squabbling all night about who will be the greatest, jockeying for position. And he knows that one of his disciples has already betrayed him, one is about to deny him, and the rest are about to abandon him. And yet, it says, he chose to love them to the end. He demonstrates above all, and first of all with this bizarre act, that whatever they do to him, they are his chosen ones and he will love them. Even Judas, who, Jesus, who will betray him, has his feet cradled by Jesus and gently washed. We are reminded ourselves later on in Romans when Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We know that nothing, nothing will. It's an outrageous act of love that God has committed to us. The way love works in our world today is transactional. We love people who love us. And if people start, you know, become, you know, if we receive a slight from somebody or somebody is rude or ungrateful for our love, then we feel it's okay to, to fall back, to, to perhaps not love that person to be slighted ourselves. 
But no, that's not Jesus. He faced betrayal, denial, abandonment. And his love never failed to his disciples, nor to us right to the end. Okay, that's what Jesus did. But then he encourages us to wash each other's feet. So what does that mean in terms of love? Philippians 2 verse 5 says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant or slave. What does it mean for us to commit acts of outrageous love? We've spoken a lot in these last few weeks about Jackie Pullinger, and I just want to mention her again. She's a young lady who went to Hong Kong and served amongst the poorest and neediest people there. And she says this about what she has done. She talks about people having soft hearts and hard feet. Our hearts, softened by the love of Christ, make our feet ready to serve others in love. She also says, sadly, that most of us have soft feet and hard hearts. So we can allow this outrageous lack of love to soften our hearts that we might um, act in love towards others. Now, the problem with all of this is that um, it's painfully humbling to kneel and serve somebody else, like a, like a slave to wash somebody else's feet. But it's even more painful to have the Lord wash your feet. Uh, and most of us feel like that. Most of us find it harder to receive than to give. Well, here's a well-known phrase. Well, get over yourselves. Okay. Get over yourselves. So that's outrageous acts of love. Just to mention at this point, it's quite, a, uh, it's quite an intense uh, passage, this. It's a, lovely, it's a lovely story, but actually the, the outcome of this is incredible. It is dramatic. And uh, I just want to say there is uh, good news uh, coming. And then we want to talk about outrageous acts of grace because... Jesus has not up to this time been talking really about acts of service, even though that's how he's demonstrated his love. Uh, but what he's been really talking about with Peter is sin and reconciliation. And here's where it gets even more scary. Outrageous acts of grace. Now, imagine at this point in the meal, uh, I imagine there'll be a stunned silence as Jesus goes from one person to another around the room. But unfortunately, fortunately, when he gets to Peter, uh, Peter can't keep his mouth shut. And that's very fortunate for us. He says, you're going to wash my feet? Jesus replies, Peter, don't you realize, you won't realize right now what I'm doing. But later you will understand. Well, 
that wasn't good enough for Peter, and, and I'm glad because it's not really good enough for me either. And so he says, no way you're going to wash my feet. No way. The subtext of that is, it's embarrassing to have my Lord wash my feet. I should be washing your feet. Um, many of you will know my wife, Mary Lois, who's uh, Chinese. And, um, and since we married, I've had to learn a lot about Chinese culture. And one of the key things I've had to learn is when you go to somebody's house, you take your shoes off. You leave your dirty shoes at the door and you might use house shoes or you might uh, just go around in your bare feet. But you leave your dirt at the door. But now we learn from the passage that this is not a story about foot hygiene or good housekeeping. Because Jesus says to Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And that little word, no part, means you are disinherited. You are taking yourself outside of God's grace, my grace to you. It becomes immediately clear he's not talking about physical dirt, but he's talking about moral failure, moral filth. It's embarrassing to have your Lord come and wash your feet. But when it comes to sin and shame, I'm not able to do that for myself. I need him. We all need Jesus, the guiltless, righteous one. Only he can come and clean away our sin. But how do we, how do we participate in that? If foot washing in this instance is an analogy for sin and forgiveness... Only God can pardon sins. So how can Jesus say, wash one another's feet? Let's go on, verse 9. Okay, Lord, says Simon Peter, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who've already had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And here is the key. Those who come to Jesus in repentance and submission, those who make him Lord of their lives, do not need to keep on coming back to him. Not, do not need to keep coming back to the well of salvation for cleansing. But nevertheless, we all mess up every day. Earlier we had the confession, and we need that confession every day. Some of us more than once a day. We mess up all the time. But Jesus says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Purify us from the daily dirt on our feet. But you know, we also sin against each other. And this is where we can participate. Mark 11 says, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now that's not easy. C.S. Lewis says, forgiveness sounds great until you have to do it. Or the opposite. 
Therefore, if you are offering your guilt at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your, guilt, your, your gift. Now that's, if forgiveness is difficult, as C.S. Lewis says, forgiveness sounds great until you have to do it. Even harder is this one. Colossians says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If anyone has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So only God can forgive sins, but we play our part in the daily foot washing of sin as we forgive and receive forgiveness from each other. So that's outrageous grace. Outrageous submission and vulnerability. Now, yeah, if we sin against someone, we ask their forgiveness. But Jesus asks us to go even further. He asks us to be vulnerable and submit to one another. So we don't just um, confess our sins to God, he says. In James, he says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Wow, that's hard. If you sinned, not against that person, but nevertheless you've done some sin and you go to them and you say, pray with me, brother, pray with me, sister. I've committed this sin. Now that is hard. Even harder. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Ooh, that's hard. That is foot washing par excellence. That is drain cleaning. We are called to be outrageously submissive and vulnerable to each other. So that's outrageous submission. Okay, final point. How to conquer the world. Now, here's the shocking power of the gospel laid before us. And if it wasn't for 2,000 years of history, you know, my money would be on the St. Crispin's Day speech, not on this. But 2,000 years of history have proved that Jesus was right. He said, when he had finished washing their feet and he put on his clothes and returned to his place, he says, do you understand what I have done for you? I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And history records that the mighty Roman Empire was brought literally to its knees by a bunch of no-name Christians whose lives were transformed by the gospel and who in turn transformed the world. Many of them were simply slaves. So, But Jesus, unlike Henry V, is not interested in winning a battle or even winning a war or saving his country. He's interested in saving the whole world through you and through me. These things are hard, 
These things are very hard, and that's why Jesus portrays this in such a shocking way that the disciples would not forget it. We cannot do these things unless the Spirit enables us. We sang a song earlier. You said you'd never leave us alone, that you would send your Holy Spirit to help us. And that's why the life of the Christians shocked the world and turned the Roman Empire upside down. Nobody had ever seen love like this. Nobody had ever seen submission like this. Nobody ever seen grace like this because it's impossible for man to do. But with God, all things are possible. So Jesus performs an outrageous act to demonstrate to us that we should, we should offer outrageous love, outrageous grace, and outrageous submission to each other. And the really good news is that the end, uh, the last sentence of this passage is, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. All of these things are tremendously hard. Um, when I used to look after the Alpha course, I used to start our training by saying, you know, unless God shows up in the Alpha course, we are going to fall flat on our faces. It's going to be a, a complete embarrassment. And that's true. That's how it is. Unless God shows up by his spirit, we cannot do these things. But when he does turn up, oh my, the blessing. Oh, the joy. Oh, the delight of seeing lives transformed. And we can have joy in this life. But also, the really good news of this, you would be blessed if you do them in this life and in the life to come. To quote Shakespeare, then our names, familiar in his mouth, will be as household words. We shall be remembered. Amen. <laughs>